So I'll tell you just a little bit about me as we kind of get some stuff set up here. Um, I have a fun connection to Trinity Fellowship. Heath and I actually grew up in the same area. He grew up in Marion. I grew up in, in West Memphis. So we're basically from the, the same hometown, but we never, never knew each other. So that was a, f- a fun connection to have. Uh, I am an intern at Christ Church Conway with Kevin Hale. I don't know if you know the Hales, but um, have been there since 2015. We were a part of a trailer park, kind of a house church um, ministry that we were involved with for the past six years prior, and then kind of as we became more reformed in our theology, um, it became an easy switch to, to just become Presbyterian. We always joked that we were a sprinkle baby away from being Presbyterian anyway. So um, we uh, assimilated and merged with Christ Church in 2015. I'm currently going through LAMP Theological Seminary. It's a program through the PCA that meets the requirements for ordination. I am eight classes away, right? So I can see the finish line. Um, and hopefully when that is all said and done, we'll go through the, the gauntlet that is um, trying to get ordained and going through the questions and, and everything that's involved in becoming a, t- a teaching elder. Um, I'm privileged to be involved in several ministries at Christ Church. One, we just recently launched um, our youth ministry, so Heath and I have that connection there and uh, get to share ideas and, and bounce things off of one another. So excited to be here. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, bear with me, I'm fighting a little bit of a head cold today. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to make it through. Revelation chapter 2. As we look at the climate of 2017, uh, we've learned a lot. Among the things that we've learned, we've learned that being a Christian or even being a part of the church has kind of taken one of two extremes in our culture lately. Either you are a part of this wave of people that define your Christianity by values or by party affiliation that you align yourself with. The longer this goes on, the more the gospel of party line seems to be elevated above all else, even at times at the expense of character and integrity in your words and behavior. Sin is justified at the altar of, but at least we aren't like the other. The media is fake news. And yeah, I know this is an idea to be, be associated with, but there's a bigger picture at play. But they aren't the only ones. On the other end of the spectrum, you have this idea of compromise. You have this idea of making sure that being a Christian means what cause you're for what social gospel you can be a part of, how inclusive you can be, how much I need to make sure that I'm not like the other. And sin is justified at the altar of making sure you're not like them, you're really progressive, you're evolved as a human, and how loving you can be as a Christian. And if we take a step back and we glance at the landscape of how Christianity is being defined in this past year, if we're honest, the two really aren't that different at all. At the core of what they prize is they prize 
relevancy. They find their hope, their identity, and their security in the God of relevancy. Either relevancy to, by those that are in a position of power in the government or those who are in a position of power in culture. Either way, Jesus is compromised and the church loses what it means to be the church at the expense of acceptance. And if we're honest, those of us in the room find ourselves in one of these two extremes on a regular basis. We think if we just make this compromise, or if I just maybe just for a little bit can adjust my thinking, then I won't have to face as much persecution and much, as much pushback that I get for being a Christian and believing what we believe. If I can just compromise just a tad bit, then I can be seen as the Christian or the church that really knows what they're talking about. I can be the, the go-to in the city. People will like us more. More people will show up. The seats will be filled. All the while knowing there's nothing but compromise. And it's in this tension that we come to the church at Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2. The big idea I want us to walk away from today is this. That Jesus calls his church to hold fast to him, even if it means losing relevancy with the culture. I'll say that again. Jesus calls his church to hold fast to him, even if that means losing relevancy with the culture. Revelation chapter 2, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. We'll start in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw him into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her child dead, children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even if, as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, and he, will, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. So just like the other letters that Jesus has written here at the beginning of Revelation, he has the same pattern. We see four 
major things. First, we see that Jesus introduces himself. Next, we see that Jesus commends his church. Third, we see that Jesus diagnoses his church. And fourth, we'll see that Jesus calls to his church. First, we see that Jesus introduces himself. Let's look at verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Here, Jesus, as he has done before, he introduces himself. John gives this great description. And you understand that this Jesus that stands before the Apostle John is not his buddy. This isn't the the Jesus that he walked along the sea with. This is God. This is the transfigured, great and mighty Jesus. This is why he doesn't just walk up to him casually. But if you remember, John falls flat on his face in fear and reverence. Here, you're not just talking to a casual, he's a good teacher, we like his sayings, Jesus. You're talking to the Son of God. Despite what authority issues they may have been dealing with, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one that upholds the world by the word of his power, the one that Calvin said held even the molecules and the cross together just by his speaking. This is the one that is talking to Thyatira. Even in the description here, we get hints of Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3, when you have the great king that has built a, a idol after himself and all the people are getting ready to bow down before it at the blast of a trumpet and you see three that don't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we know the story that they get thrown into the furnace and even in the furnace they're walking around and the people look and they say there's a fourth person in this furnace, one that looks like the son of the gods. He's shining bright. He's brilliant. He's different. Here, Jesus uses that same descriptor of himself, giving hints here of who is speaking. So not only does Jesus introduce himself as the Son of God, Jesus tells us that he has eyes like the flame of fire. Here, that gives us hints. As with each other letter, the descriptor that Jesus gives of himself as he gets ready to address each church gives you a hint of what he's about to say. Sometimes Jesus exercises his role as prophet. Other times he exercises his role as priest. And there are other times where he exercises his role as king. Here we see King Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy One, is about to cast judgment. This, these eyes that are like flames of fire see past all the charades, see past all the games, all the outward appearance that looks real well, Jesus penetrates to the very heart of the matter with these eyes like flames of fire. The people in Thyatira may have been able to fool everyone and the people around them with what was going on, but they're not going to fool Jesus. Third, we see that Jesus describes himself as having feet like burnished bronze. There's a play on words here with this word for burnished bronze. It's actually 
um, descriptive of this certain type of metal that was only made in Thyatira. It was this like special burnished bronze, this, this custom metal that they would have meant. And having feet like burnished bronze executes this idea of judgment. Not only does he have authority over his enemies, but he is going to crush them. And here, this calls back to Daniel 7, when the Holy One appears before the Ancient of Days, having been given authority by the Ancient of Days, he too had feet like burnished bronze. Judge Jesus has stepped forward in court. It's now in session. So not only does he introduce himself, but Jesus also commends his church. Let's look at verse 19. I know your works, your love, your faith, service, and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed that of the first. See, Jesus has this pattern. He introduces himself, he tells them what they're doing well, and then he's about to tell them the issue that he has with our attire. But first, he's going to talk to them and tell them what he thinks they're doing well. And listen to the language that he uses. I know your works. I know what you're about, Thyatira. I can see what you're about. I know who you really are. And listen to the description. I know your love. I know your service. I know your faith. I know your patient endurance. These are all things that Trinity Fellowship would want to be known for. If Jesus were were standing and giving an account for Trinity Fellowship, you would want him to say, hey, I know about your love. You love people really well. You care for people. You make people feel welcome. You love them. And the way you love them is through your service. You serve one another well. We don't have to try to rally you to, to care for people. You do that without us even asking. I know about your faith. Isn't that something we would want to be known for? How good our faith is? How, how we are known for our faith? I know about your patient endurance. When these other churches are suffering under the attacks of the Roman Empire and suffering persecution, you patiently endure. That would be something we would want to be known for. That even in the midst of tribulation, that we would endure. And he even says that your latter works exceed that of the first. From the time of your planting 30 years ago to now, Trinity Fellowship, you've gotten better at loving, at serving, at enduring in your faith. That's definitely something we would want to hear. This is the opposite of what he says about the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus forgets their first love. They started out strong and lost it somewhere along the way. Thyatira, this isn't true for them. They started out strong and got better. Man, this sounds like an awesome church. What possibly could be an issue? The reality of the matter is this church seemed on the outside to have it all together. They were hard workers in life. They were hard at work in the church. They even did things that Ephesus couldn't. Ephesus, the one that Paul planted, the one that had John the Apostle as a pastor, the great lineage, Ephesus, even couldn't match little Thyatira. But Jesus has one issue with them. 
And that brings us to the third point. Jesus diagnoses his church. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those that commit adultery with her I will throw throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give each to you according to your works. Here, Judge Jesus is about to sentence Thyatira. But to understand really what the issue is, it's important to understand a little bit of the the context of their tolerance issue. So, looking at the context and the culture in Thyatira, you need to know a little bit about their background. Thyatira was in a valley, and they were kind of this place you went through in order to get to the bigger cities. They, They weren't ever known for trade, they weren't, weren't ever known for um, commerce, really, for the majority of their history. They were actually known as the city that constantly get, gets ransacked as whatever known power and empire is marching its way through the area. And here, the, the angel, the messenger that is going and delivering these letters has gone and he's going through kind of the trail that you see from Ephesus to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and he goes 40 miles south to Thyatira in this valley that is constantly conquered. And here, in this valley, you see, actually, lately, things have started to kind of look up. In the, in the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, where there hasn't been really a lot of war going on, Thyatira starts to kind of develop. And the way that they develop is through these unions. So they were really good at trade. We know this because you can see in Acts 16, if you remember, Lydia, the seller of purple, is from Thyatira. So they sold purple, this huge cloth. They made bronze. They um, built brick. And each of these unions had their own guild. And if you were going to be somebody in the, the trades areas of Thyatira, then you needed to be a part of this guild. The only issue is each guild has its own deity. So you could be a part of this guild, and if you weren't part of the guild, you're probably not going to get work. But in order to be part of this guild, they would have their regular union meetings, and then after that, they'd have a feast. And the feast would give homage to whatever deity god they aligned with. So the bricklayers would have their guild and deity. The sellers of purple would have their guild and deity. The bronze makers would have their guild and deity. The, the pottery guild would have its own deity. And you really weren't going to find work unless you were part of this club. But in order to be part of this club, you got to compromise a little bit. And here... In the midst of this cultural compromise, this, this 
just adjustment in the thinking, this alignment for the sake of relevancy, you find the people of Thyatira. And for whatever reason, they have elevated this, this prophetess, this prophetess Jezebel. Now, a couple of things. Her name's probably not Jezebel. We'll get to that in just a second. It's a nickname that Jesus is going to give her for the sake of what she's doing. But for whatever reason, she has been elevated to a position of power by constantly saying she has a word from the Lord. And her word from the Lord is, hey, I get that you're a Christian, but you don't have to compromise your Christianity. No one's calling you to not believe in Jesus. Just if you're going to be in this guild, you're going to have to adjust your thinking a little bit. You need to be a little more tolerant. You should not be so narrow-minded about Jesus being the only way. We're not asking you to sacrifice all of your belief. Just, we're going to throw this party. And after we throw this party, we're going to worship this deity. And there's a certain way that we worship this deity. And you're going to have to compromise yourself a little bit. Picture now yourself in Thyatira. The only way you can find work is being in the, these trades. And the only way to really succeed as a business person is to go to this guild. How, how many times would you be able to slip out the back before people started questioning your loyalty? And how do you think you would survive without being a member of this guild? That's the tension that they find themselves in. And we, you may say, well, Gage, I don't, we don't really have that problem now. But let's go back to the introduction. In 2017, and as we enter into the new year, what it means to be Christian finds itself in these two extremes. Either you sacrifice a little bit for the sake of party line, or you sacrifice a little bit for the sake of acceptance. The reality of the matter is we're really not that much different or evolved or progressive than, than Thyatira. Different context, same issues. And here, Jesus diagnoses the issue. The gospel of Jezebel has reigned supreme in the church of Thyatira. The, the gospel that you can have your Christianity and your cultural acceptance to. You just need to adjust your Christianity a little bit. You need to adjust your thinking. I, I get that it's not ideal to align yourself with this person, but... And what's the alternative? Here, Jezebel says, I get that it's not ideal, but what's the alternative? You don't work? Come on, compromise a little bit. See, if we remember looking back to 1 Kings, Jezebel was the wife of Ahab. Ahab was the king that the scriptures say that no one brought the Lord God to indignation the way Ahab did. Why? Because he was spineless when it came to Jezebel. Jezebel comes from a foreign country, and when the red flags just start to go on, because remember the people of Israel, as they entered the promised land, were given one, one rule, you need to destroy all the pagans as to, to not fall into idolatry. And compromise after compromise leads to them not all leaving. And here, Jezebel, coming from a foreign country, brings her paganism with, 
and idolatry in. And it starts with a little compromise, and then the next thing you know, Ahab gets frustrated because he can't buy a piece of land, and Jezebel says, don't worry, I got it, and she kills the guy and says, now you have your land. This is the Jezebel that the great Elijah, who calls fire down from heaven and makes a mockery of 500 prophets of Baal, runs into the woods scared to death because of this woman. But we know how her story ends. Even after Ahab dies, she sees the next big king coming through, and she kind of positions herself out the window and says, Hey. And she says, Is it peace? And Jehu says, Nope, not peace. She gets thrown out the window, trampled by horses, and ate by dogs. The Lord has no patience for idolatry. And he's diagnosing the issue. And notice here, this is the only letter in all the seven churches that repentance is a thing of the past. I've given her time to repent. Apparently, there had been time given prior to this letter for Jezebel to repent and her children to repent, her disciples, as they were, to repent, and they absolutely don't. And Judge Jesus has had enough. And before you think, Gage, man, this is a little harsh, can't we just kick her out of the church and let it, let it be that? Be careful that you're not more tolerant than the second person of the Trinity. Be, ca- be careful that you're not more compromising and more loving by your own definition, than God. See, all throughout Scripture, when God talks about idolatry, he talks about it in relationship to a man and his wife, and he talks about it in the sense of her cheating on him. Think about the prophet Hosea. Think about the language that's used there. God takes idolatry very seriously because he sees his relationship with his bride as covenantal. And here, to protect his bride, Jezebel's got to get thrown down. And notice what he says in verse 22 or 23. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give each to him, give to each of you according to his works. Here, Jesus calls back to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah, who tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked, who can know it? And the next verse is this one here, that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. This is the Son of God with the eyes like fire. He sees past the facade and sees past the position of power with Jezebel and see straight to what she's actually after. I think about the conversation I had with a, another pastor buddy here in, in Sherwood. He met a um, well-known pastor in the area who has several megachurches throughout the state, and um, my buddy mentioned that he's a an, an young pastor. It's his first pastorate, and he's just trying to figure things out. And the guy looked at him, and he said, well, At the end of the day, you just need to remember to preach from the heart. 
And my buddy Jonathan looks at him and says, God, I hope not, because my heart's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Here, the gospel of Jezebel is getting shut down by the great shepherd. But notice what he says, lastly, as he calls to his church. Let's look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, and I do not lay any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Who is this call to? It's to the ones that do not hold to this teaching. That there is a remnant, as there always has been, that's holding on. There's a remnant that hadn't fallen victim to the lies of Jezebel. See, it's always interesting when you get into this gospel of compromise, this gospel of tolerance, this gospel of relevancy, just a a little bit of adjustment here, how it's always the deeper things. Here Jezebel probably pitched this idea to the church at Thyatira that, hey, we're going to be different Christians. We're going to be the type of Christians that can exist in the world and do whatever we need to do there and understand that on Sunday it's a little different. We can compartmentalize. This is our business world. This is our church world. This is our religious life. This is our daily life. It'll be okay. We can handle it. And they always tout like they're more evolved. Like they they care way more about the gospel than you do. And here, Jesus calls it what it is not more advanced, it's not more tolerant, it's not more loving, it's not more evolved, it's the deep things of Satan. Yet, notice what he says. What is the call here? To hold fast until he comes. See, here's the thing. We're so prone, even in this moment, we're so prone to think, okay, i got to get Jezebel out of the church and i got to do all these things. And yet Jesus calls us again and again to one simple thing. Hold fast to him. Hold fast to him. It's the most difficult thing we can possibly do. We're prone to to be list makers, right? We need rules. Gage, you need to tell me ten ways I need to be a good husband. You need to tell me five ways I need to be a better evangelist. You need need to tell me three ways I need to be a better neighbor. Give me something to do. And Jesus says, hold fast to me. That's your something to do. It's harder than it sounds. That's why we need to hear it every week. And he calls them, and notice what he says. He places no other burden on them but to hold to him. Why? Because Jesus is enough. It's not about advancement. It's not about positioning yourself well so you can be thought of well in the community. It's also not about isolating yourself from the culture either to where you're the, you're the weird Christians. You can hang out and be good neighbors and be good employees, but at the end of the day, you need to hold fast to Jesus. Jesus is enough. Because eventually, the Jezebels and the cultural powers of the world will all suffer the same fate. They'll fall at the feet of the bronzed feet. Jesus. And here... He calls us to hold fast. And notice what he promises. He says, to those that do this, to the one who conquers, 
who keeps my works, verse 26, until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen, earthen pots or broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. So here, as Jesus promises, he gives them three promises. One, that they'll reign with him. Here, Jesus calls back to Psalm 2, this psalm that was given to every, the inauguration of every king in Israel. And if you know how Psalm 2 ends, it says you need to kiss the son lest he be angry, but ultimately he will have the nations. Thyatira, you little town who is constantly being subdued, constantly being ransacked, constantly trying to figure out where you fit in into the bigger scheme of the Roman Empire, sacrifice now being insignificant because eventually you'll reign with Christ. That's the same charge that Paul gives to the Corinthians when they're struggling with sexual immorality. He looks at them and says, do you not know that you're going to reign with Christ? It's the same charge I would give Trinity Fellowship here when you're tempted to try to compromise for the sake of acceptance. Do you not know that eventually you'll reign with Christ? He gives true justice and ultimately, verse 28, he gives himself the morning star. Later on in Revelation, we find out the morning star is Jesus. The greatest gift we could be given isn't a to-do list. It's Jesus. In heaven, the thing that will be great about heaven is Jesus. And eternity with him. Because if, if Jesus isn't in heaven, it's hell. Plain and simple. So as we close, the letter ends with a call to us. That is the question it asks, or the statement it makes, rather. Verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I ask today, do we have ears to hear? Is Jesus enough? Or are we selling ourselves to find hope, identity, and security in being accepted by those in power so we can position ourselves for relevancy. Do we have ears? Are we holding fast? May we hold fast to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you today. It never escapes me to remember that other brothers and sisters around the world don't have the convenience that we do. May we, in this next year, not take that for granted. And even as culture shift happens in the Bible Belt, and as what it means to be a Christian attempts to be redefined, may we remember that there's nothing new under the sun. That we as every other saint in the history of redemption, must hold fast. Would you help us do that? Because without your help, we can't do it. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.